I always love baby dedications because it reminds me of Easter. It reminds me of new life. And last week we celebrated Easter, in case you missed it. Um, and, and we said, he is risen. And then sometimes you say, right, right. And, and sometimes that's how we live it, just kind of how you responded. He's risen. He is risen indeed. Like, we're not sure. Like, it's more of a question than a statement. Um, more of a, I'm not sure, than a celebration, than an exclamation. Um, and we said, you know, Easter tells us that everything changed. And yet, a lot of us live as if not everything's changed. Um, it doesn't feel new. It doesn't feel different. And that's where this whole idea of this Come Awake series comes from, that the resurrection changes everything. We want to figure out what that means. What does everything new mean? What is this idea that everything is changed? We want to, we want to figure that out because a lot of us, it doesn't feel new. A lot of us can't understand this new kingdom. It still feels like we live in the old kingdom. We still use statements like, nice guys always finish last. Um, the most powerful always win. And, um, and so that's kind of what we experience. Now, I didn't grow up with brothers, but I learned in early kind of junior high age that if I wanted to enjoy my food, I had to eat it like this at the table because everyone would steal it. And I was, and you can tell, they did. Um, <laughs> But I, I got this fear that there was never going to be enough food. Um, now, in politics, I don't know if you've heard of super PACs. Okay? Well, I'm just learning what super PACs are, and they are basically this new way for political action committees to raise unlimited funds for, um, for well, between corporations and unions and associations and, and individuals to spend Unlimited, to raise unlimited funds, to spend unlimited funds, to overtly advocate for or against the candidate. Just can't give it right directly to the candidate, but they can do this. And so what was supposed to have a salary cap, if you will, what was supposed to be a process of um, the people with the most money shouldn't have to win, seems like it's reverting back to, well, money's free speech, so the most people with the most money win. And so suddenly public servant doesn't really seem like it fits quite the message. And it's again, it's a reminder of this old kingdom. Um, In relationships, uh, whether it's a family or a marriage or even a job, we often get concerned with making sure our own needs are being met. And so picture this tug of war. Like, remember that game from junior high or elementary school where the big long rope and you had a, if you were lucky, you had a sand pit. If you weren't lucky, it was like a mud pit. And then you had to go to school, like go back into math with mud on your jeans because your team lost because you're pulling the rope to see which team can get in. And again, I wasn't the strongest or biggest kid, so I often ended up in the mud. But in our relationship, not that it's about me, but in our relationships, we we kind of feel like we have to do this tug of war because we need to make sure that we stay out of the mud. We need to make sure that our own needs are being met. And I'll do marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling and, and we'll talk about people's needs and, and, and I have men and women who sit across the table and they, what they describe to me is this tug of war. 
I have to meet my own needs because otherwise they won't be met. Otherwise, I'll end up in the pit. I've got to protect myself. And when that happens, we become so self-focused and self-centered and we have to invest in ourself in order to make sure that self doesn't die. And, and those people are pulling me into the pit. And maybe you're just tired of pulling Maybe you're in a situation where like, it's all you can do to stay out of the pit, but you don't want to pull anymore. And that's the question that we come to today. Does Easter give us any hope that something is going to be different? Does the resurrection actually give us chance for change? And that's where I think the text takes us. That's where I think God takes us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to John 20. If you don't have your Bibles, that might be up on the screen. But this is one week after Easter here in John 20. The disciples have been, some of the disciples have seen the risen Jesus at least once. Others haven't. And they're meeting again to talk, to pray. Uh, And let's see what that says. But before it does, let me pray. God, I thank you for your word for your living relationship with us, God, for the, um, the time of worship through music, through the time of um, the understanding of, of that we can worship you through serving and, and we can worship you um, and rejoice with you for new babies. And now as we go to your word, I pray that you would speak to our own hearts, God, as a community and individually, about where we need hope for change. Maybe a place where we're pulling uh, for some reason, and I pray that your text, God, and your word would, would, would be the impetus for change, that your spirit would be here now guiding us. Amen. Well, in John twenty twenty six, it says, a week later, he, Jesus, his disciples, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, the house they were in the week before, the, the place they were staying at the Last Supper, and Thomas was with them this time. Thomas, who's known as the twin or known as Didymus, wasn't there a week ago when Jesus came in the room and said, peace be with you. And so Thomas said, you know, unless I see the marks in his hand and put my finger there, unless I see the hole in his side and put my hand in there, I just won't believe. And so now the doors were locked and Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. And then he turned to Thomas and he said, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. So what's going on in this story? Why did the writer decide to put this story in this part of his book? Why was it so important for this guy who's probably named John to include it. Uh, I think one idea is that they wanted to show Thomas's renewal. We call him Doubting Thomas, if you've heard that phrase before. Actually, it's more of Unbelieving Thomas, but we'll get there in a second. And then to show even after the resurrection that there were doubts and there were fears among his disciples. And so we'll start with doubts. Thomas's words help us understand kind of the difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I can't believe. Uh, There are just too many obstacles, there are too many problems, or I have too many questions. And doubt is okay. 
I want to make sure we, we get that. A lot of times, especially religious people, we get all like this if somebody starts doubting. And, and if we start using like infallibility or inerrancy, these really big words that if you don't know what it means, it's okay. But we start to use them and we start to doubt these things or we start to doubt maybe like the, the way in which and the length of which the earth was made or, or when Jesus exactly comes back, people, a lot of times, they get really nervous. And, and Jesus is like, I got it. It's okay. I am a gigantic God, and my, my thoughts can't be understood all the time. Isaiah says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And so if we think we can sort of always understand God, I think we're fooling ourselves. We want a big God that's hard to comprehend, yet easily accessible. And so he's not worried by some little doubts. And so if you have questions or doubts, that's okay. This needs to be a place where, where that's okay. Because God is big enough, and ultimately we believe that all truth will lead us to God. But unbelief says... I will not believe unless you give me the evidence I ask for. And that's kind of what Thomas said. He said, I will not believe it unless I see his hands and I see his side. And it just reminds me like of the places in my life where, where I have some unbelief, where I really want hard evidence, where I spent two years sitting on my hands after God had clearly said, I want you to start a church. I went, because I had unbelief. I had unbelief in myself. I had unbelief in God. I wanted hard evidence. This wasn't doubt. This was pure, old unbelief. And I think this text should cause us to look at our own lives and, and ask, where are their doubts? And why are there doubts? Again, doubts are okay. But if you're just in a place because you're not quite sure that God's going to come through, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in your family, whether it's in somewhere else, or where those things are really unbelief, where, where you need hard evidence in order to be there. Now be careful if, you're, if your issue is unbelief. Because you might not get what you ask for, but you might get what you ask for and you might not like it. It might be very challenging. Again, God meets us in those places, but, but we can often get overwhelmed in those places, which can often lead to a crisis of belief. And again, God can handle that. But those things kind of all lead up to fear. The disciples, even a week later, even after the disciples have seen the risen Jesus, still lock the door. Did you catch that? And they met again a week later with the doors locked. Why are they still locking the door? Did they really believe that Jesus had risen? Did they really believe that Jesus had all authority? Or were they doubting? And if I'm one of the disciples, and I'm afraid, then I'm going to replay all the times that Jesus said 
the Son of Man has to die. He has to go, and then he has to be risen again. The Son of Man has to die. He has to go to the grave. He will be betrayed, but then he will rise again. And over and over, those things are going to be going through my mind. Now, I don't know if it was going through the disciples' mind. We can't know, but we can get some pretty good evidence in Matthew 16, 21, that says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, and he must be killed, and on the third day he would be raised to life. Or Matthew 17, 9, where he says he comes down from the mountain after he's been shown at least three of the disciples his glory, and he says, don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Matthew 17, again, he goes to Galilee and he says the Son of Man has to be delivered into the hands of men. And then later, Matthew 20, he says, we're going to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will raise. Those would be the things going through my mind if I'm one of the disciples and the door's locked. Except even after those three predictions that Jesus gives to the disciples about how he's going to suffer and die, there is this one incident that they can't really seem to shake. So you can move from John 20, if you want to leave your hand there, that's fine, and go to Matthew 20. Because I don't think we can really separate these two issues, especially in terms of the resurrection. Jesus has said over and over, I'm the Messiah, but I'm going to have to die. I'm the Savior, I'm the King, but I have to go to a cross. And they're like, "Mm mm-mm, I don't like that. And, And Jesus even says, the Son of Man, when he sits in his kingdom, you will sit with me on thrones, and you will judge with me. But again, that wasn't enough for them. Matthew 20 says that, that the mother of Zebedee's sons, so James and John, which were kind of two of Jesus' closest disciples, went with their mother to Jesus, Matthew twenty twenty, and knelt down, as you would to a king, and asked him a favor. Jesus said, what do you want? And she says, grant that one of my two sons will sit on your right and on your left in your kingdom. And he says, you don't know what you're asking can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And they all answer, we can. James and John were like, yes, we want to, because we want the glory. You will indeed, Jesus says, drink from my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And you wonder why? Because they didn't think of it first. They're like, oh, they beat us to it. I am so mad. And they were frustrated. And so Jesus has said three times in the last weeks, in the last journey, three times, the Son of Man, he's going to die before he gets the glory. But all they heard was glory. All they heard was kingdom. All they heard was king. And they heard that they were going to get spots of power, and that wasn't enough. They wanted, they wanted the spots of power. They didn't want to just sit on one of the thrones. They wanted the spots. The king had two advisors on his left and on his right, and that's what they wanted, and that's what they were fighting over. Because just being part of this in crowd, part of this eternal ruling party wasn't enough. They wanted to have the top spot. 
But I bet that never happens in your life, right? Or mine. Like Friday night, we have life groups or our gathering together and my wife made brownies and my wife makes the best brownies. I mean, granted, they're probably from a box, but still, they're phenomenal. And she loves to just undercook them a little bit so they're just gooey, really gooey. But on the sides, you can have the crunchy. It's like two in one. You get the crunchy or the gooey, phenomenal. And my kids and I, we kind of fight over because I like one part and most of my kids like that part too. And... And my wife has kind of claimed the part that she loves, which is the gooey middle. And since she made them, she pretty much gets that because we want to serve her. Um, That's not true. I mean, it kind of is, but the point is we shared... Man, this is why I don't go off script. The point is that we shared them with our life group. It was phenomenal. And there was a few left. So the next day at breakfast, I'm hauling myself out of bed at six whatever in the morning, just wishing they would sleep later. And all I hear is, um, can we have brownies for breakfast? And in a moment of sheer idiocracy, my wife's like, yes, that's fine. And what happens? Not that they're grateful. See, there's a point. Not that they're grateful that they get to have brownies for breakfast. No, they start fighting over the biggest one. We do this all the time. We're not grateful for what we have. We want more. We want the biggest one. Just like James and John, they wanted the best seats of power. When they heard king and kingdom and glory, all they started arguing about was who was going to get to be the greatest. They wanted position, privilege, power, and status. And what are the things of this world but position, privilege, power, and status. We think that these things will get us farther and farther and farther in our life. And Jesus says, you've missed it. You have missed it. He says in Matthew 20, 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the rulers of these worldly kingdoms, lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority. And he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. These disciples wanted a king without a cross. They wanted authority without suffering or serving. They wanted a resurrection without a death. But you and I who know the whole story know that you can't have resurrection without death. And if I just didn't get in the way of my life, I would be a great follower of Jesus. But part of following Jesus means we have to sacrifice ourself. Jesus says, whoever wants to follow me must deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow me. This idea that we can have all the guts and all the glory and all the kingdom and all our status and privilege and power and authority is just not true. 
One commentator said it this way. He said, the human condition with status and importance is clearly one of the most fundamental things that must be unlearned for us to truly experience God's kingdom. Now, in the resurrection, Jesus turned the power paradigm upside down. He said, my kingdom is not about being served, but about serving. It's not about power and position. It's about going underneath people. It's about giving, not taking. It's about other-centeredness versus self-centeredness. Servanthood, Jesus would say, is the new kingdom. It's the new authority. It's the new power. So what does it mean when we said last week as we started this series, if we recognize the risen Jesus, everything can change. What does that mean? I think first of all, it means that last week we said it, it means we no longer have to fear death because death has no power over us anymore. Death, Jesus conquered death. But this week, I think it means that we have a new authority in Jesus. And the way we get this new authority is through serving God and serving others. Because as we serve God, our focus goes off of ourselves and our needs and our wants and our desires and the biggest brownie and to others. And all of a sudden, self-centeredness dissolves. It also means we can stop trying to protect someone from eating all our food and be willing to share it because Jesus is probably going to provide for our needs. He says that in his word. It means that when we realize that we live in this world with people who crave power, people who use power and money for good but also for evil, that we can live under the authority of Jesus in the new kingdom, not needing to seek that power and that riches. So I guess the question for waking up to a new authority would be whose authority do you want to live under? Do you want to live under the authority of Jesus, which is serving? Or do you want to seek after these things? That brings us back to Thomas, because Thomas had to make a choice. A week later, when the disciples were in the house and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace. And he said to Thomas, Put your hand here. Put your finger in the mark. Take your hand and put it in my side. Stop unbelieving and believe. And then Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. He didn't need to put his hand in there. He saw and he made this huge revelatory statement. My Lord and my God. All the other authorities, all the other powers had been erased now. And for Thomas, that was it. And Jesus, our risen King, makes this new way for us to serve, for us to be servants. So who are you trusting? Are you trusting in money or power or influence or privilege or position or status? In the old system of authority, thinking that that might help us get ahead, or are you trusting in Jesus, the one who turned the power paradigm upside down and calls us to live it out? Someone who's lived it out really well, Um, in a different place uh, has been Tim, my friend Tim Drank. Tim works with Discovery Ministry. And and Tim is going to Kosovo on Saturday, uh, six days. So so Tim, um, you're traveling to Kosovo 
to work on a ministry you started 13 years ago. How did Discovery Ministry get involved in Kosovo? Uh, Back in 19... In uh, 1999, there was ethnic cleansing happening in this uh, faraway place that most of us have never heard of in Kosovo. And these, the Kosovans were forced out of their home at gunpoint. And we, uh, my sister, my younger sister was at a small town in, in Albania. And these thousands of refugees showed up without any government aid to help them. And my sister called home thinking, well, maybe we can raise $1,000 or something because they were using their own money and were running out to, to buy food for these people. And through various circumstances and TV news stories, we raised, uh, my father and I raised over uh, $200,000 in money and supplies. And we traveled there to bring them uh, the, all that we had gotten. And <clears throat> that led to multiple trips and the, the refugees that once, the Albanians, once they were able to go home, they said, we want you to come visit us. We want you to repay the kindness that you've done. And so we were able to go to travel, uh, travel to Kosovo and have developed relationships with these people that now we keep going back and, and see these uh, people that we've known now for 13 years. Wow. Now, now people in Kosovo, they were being forced out. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, they're all Muslim, right? Or most of them are Muslim. They're all Muslim. They're all Muslim. And you, um, dis- the ministry you work for, Discovery, focuses on discipleship of Christians, right? Followers of Jesus? Yes. So, so as you were going there, um, what were some of your thoughts as you were doing this hugely different thing? Like, was there any fear? Were you worried? Like, I mean, God provided $200,000, but you're going into this war-torn place of, of a bunch of Muslims, we're a small organization, and we don't do humanitarian work. So as we would see these uh, multiple busloads of people get off and have her, after having traveled for days without food and just terrible conditions and being traumatized by seeing family members killed or brutalized and, and, or family members missing, how, do we, how can we help? And... We, for many times, many, many times we're simply handing bread and cheese out to people uh, because, and blankets and a place to sleep because that's what we were able to do. One of the needs that, that I saw, what came from when they were forced out of their homes, their documents, their passports, their IDs were taken from them and burned with the, mm. the purpose of forcing them out of the country and, and then not allowing them back in because they had no identification. And so I, I thought on that, that first trip that, that we should make photo ID cards uh, for these refugees. And I picked uh, one particular refugee camp that had a couple hundred people, and, and we made a second trip, and we, and we did that, uh, among other things. And the local government saw these ID cards and said, those are great, would you make them for everybody in the region? <laughs> and, and so... Wow. That, and that's about 3,500 people. And after feeling overwhelmed and, and thinking, yeah, how do we do this? And this, of course, they asked us on the second, the, the last day we were there for this trip. And we said, well, we'll come back. 
and, and so we brought more people and equipment and supplies, and we made 3,500 ID cards. And so, but what amazed me was, you know, I saw this need, and I planned for what I thought we could do, a couple hundred. And here God said, no, you can make more than a couple hundred. You can mm-hmm. make 3,500. And even now, every now and then, that some Kosovan that will come across will pull out one of these old ID cards and 13 say, years later. 13 years later, and say, we remember what you did for us. Mm. And you gave us hope that we would be able to return to our homes one day. Wow. And so that was something that, in responding to that need that we saw, that God used in a way that I did not think mm. uh, we were able to accomplish. Really almost like giving them their identity back. Yes, it was. Know? And as, as believers in Jesus, we know that our identity comes from Christ. But as these um, Muslim believers, or Muslim, I guess not Muslim believers yet, but Muslim in culture, um, there were a lot of barriers to talking to them about you know, their true identity, which we know comes from, from God. So, so you went over there and you, you didn't talk to them right away about Jesus, about um, at least Christianity. I mean, some, some places kind of criticized maybe, or at least questioned uh, maybe your motive or your evangelism tactics, if you will. So um, as we think about Jesus giving us this new authority, what were, what were you, um, what was your response to those criticisms? Well, so I know some of the people that criticized us really didn't understand uh, the situation, at least in that, that first year of what was going on. Um, how do you, one of the thoughts we had were, how do you share Jesus with someone who had been forced out of their home by gunpoint by an Orthodox Christian? And to even say, mm. you should become a Christian, um, you're telling them that they need to become like these people that killed some of their family members. Wow. And, and on top of that, we have just this survival mode of um, being refugees. So it wasn't something that we could hand someone a track as they got off this bus, um, having traveled for days, not knowing where loved ones were, uh, parents were, um, and say, you know, God bless you, and here's Jesus. Uh, And so it was just helping them with those needs of food, blankets. And then as we've developed relationships with them, we have heard and, and people have said, well, we know your faith is real because of what you do. And, and so we have respect. We've earned the right to be heard. Through uh, serving them. Through serving, through uh, repeated uh, going back and saying, looking at what they need, not coming in and saying, well, we're good at this. This is how we do it in America. This is what it looks like for us. And pushing that on them, but saying, what is your need? Where are you hurting the most? And doing things and, and providing uh, for that. And, and that wow. has, you know, we had one, one gentleman told our translator, he said, well, don't, don't tell them this, but our faith isn't real. Um, we don't really do much with religion, but we see that their faith is true. And, and, we, really res- and we really respect that. Wow. And, of so course, you, our translator told us. So. Right, right. <laughs> so. so you, with Discovery Ministry, have taken this idea of that serving really is the way, not as a gimmick, but as a true understanding of 
of who Jesus is that we go in and serve. Um, and that's had years and years of, of payoff, even though maybe criticized at the beginning. So this trip, when you leave Saturday, what will you do to continue that work or start new works? Or One of the, as we've transitioned to doing ministry, as you know, in the first few years it was rebuilding, um, dealing with the trauma of what was going on, and now we've been able to uh, do more ministry, talk about the kingdom of God, uh, share with people uh, what it means to not become a Christian because of that equals Western uh, mm. leaving their culture, but what it means to follow Christ and what it means to have Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, and so we've been able to have more of those conversations. Uh, so we're involved with that. We'll, of course, we'll go back and see some of the same people we've known since they were refugees in 99. Um, and another thing we're going to do is uh, work with other organizations who have approached us, wanting to partner with us in looking at projects that we can do, that we can bring people from here, there, uh, and build relationships with people, Kosovans, that we may not, just by sheer number, may not get a chance to, to develop relationships with, because in those relationships, that's when they're willing to hear about Jesus. Uh, we've you know, we've seen organizations come in and... and do something, uh, talk about Jesus, and then leave. And the Kosovans go, look at that, and, and say, well, okay, and, and ignore it. Wow. And so, in the, so we want to do projects that people can come and develop relationships sure. with someone. And, and then they're willing to hear about Jesus and the kingdom of God. Very neat. Well, if you think about what we've done today, um, where we've talked about the resurrection and Easter and new life, and then we've given children, we've dedicated children to God in hopes that they will one day accept Christ. And we've talked about what it means to accept, what it means to follow, what it means to believe this new authority. And then to see Tim one day who was presented with his parents long, not so long ago, um, but before me, um, and now is going out to share that love and that, that understanding of who Jesus is, it is really a beautiful thing. That One thing that should tell us that, that it's not about us, that there is a God who cares for our needs, who leads us forward and sends us out, regardless of whether you are a missionary or whether you um, walk across the cubicle to someone at work to extend a hand or to serve them. So I'd love to pray. Naomi, would you mind coming up? I, you're not going, right? But... But oftentimes what happens when someone leaves to go do God's work, uh, there's often hardship at home. So you're going to be home with your kids and, and you're going to have to care for them alone. No, I, <laughs> I mean, really? Hmm. Two and a half weeks is nothing. So. Well said. Uh, well, if you would pray with me as we pray for Tim. Father God, uh, I thank you for a friend uh, and a family that has said yes to you, that believes that serving is your new kingdom. And God, because you have died and you have risen, you say and can say that I have all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples in this new kingdom. 
teaching them, baptizing them in, in my name. And God, we send Tim with hope and prayer and with your authority because you have given it. We pray that, that the work that they do to extend service and love and the message of Jesus would be received, that they would, um, God, be able to strengthen the bonds that, that have been made and they would be able to create new bonds so that even the Kosovans that will never meet the people that work for Discovery Ministry, but hear of someone who heard from someone who heard from someone that Jesus is real, that even as a Muslim, they can choose him and follow him. God, that the world would one day, all the world would know, not just that your, your service is the new way of your kingdom, but would know that you are Savior and Lord of the universe. So God, as you go with Tim, would you go with us from today? Would you go with us with our doubts and our fears and our unbelief and our questions? And would you meet us where we're at? God, would we take up your cross and your cross of sacrifice of self and to serve you, to move in ways that, that we couldn't move alone, but with you we can move. And so we go expectantly, God, we go rejoicing like we rejoice with these families that dedicated their children with the hopes and dreams. God, we go out this week with hopes and dreams that you will do far more than we could ask or imagine, not only in our lives and not only in this community, but in the entire world. And so we we pray this in the confident name of Jesus, the one who has conquered death. Amen.